Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming to Oak City Church. If you're uh, new with us, we'd love to know who you are and get connected. If you're joining us online, you can drop us an email through the website. If you're here personally, uh, in person, I mean, uh, you can fill out the card in front of you and drop it in the box on the way out the door. Uh, we want to, all of us to come with a, what Jeff's going to talk about today, just a humble confidence in light of what we just sing about, in light of the fact that Christ is crucified and he lives. And because he lives, we can live. So if you would, in honor of God and his word, would you please stand as I read our scripture for today. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thank you. You guys can have a seat. As John said, welcome. If you're uh, brand new to Oak City Church, we're really glad that you're here. We are in a series for the summer, um, and really a post-COVID series that we um, call Why We Need the Church More Than Ever. And some things that we've learned over the past you know, year of missing gathering together as a church and some things that, that we've learned. And so the last few weeks in this series have been things... That, that only the church does, and one of them had to do with worship and how the church is the only thing that's really going to point you outside of yourselves to something that transcends you um, to God, to worship God and to orient your life around him. And, and then there was a week on friendship and how the gospel creates the context for friendship, like nothing else can create context for friendship. And friendships are, are relationships are hard, right? Amen? Can I get that? Uh, and, and the gospel creates a context for the relationships that you need the most. And then um, last week, we started in on a few weeks having to do with mission uh, for the church. And our stated mission as a church is helping people come to know and follow Jesus. Uh, that's what we're here for. And God is at work through the church in a unique way in the world. And, and last week, that was about being ambassadors and having the message of reconciliation that God has given us and how we carry that. Now, this passage, Salt and Light, um, I'm going to spend the next two weeks in this, kind of follow through on that, and what does that look like for us as the church, and how do we do that? Uh, I'm going to talk through really how the church serves as for the common good of the culture, but also at the same time serves as a counterculture, and that creates uh, some tension that we have to live through well uh, as the church. So I'm not sure I'm not sure I've ever preached this, you are the salt of the earth, which is hard for me to believe, really. But this week, when I started thinking about that, I realized, um, I thought, sal like, salt is boring, right? Uh, it is. Like, every, every spice cabinet, you all have salt in your house. Um, no one has ever 
looked at a recipe. I cook a lot, like to bake. We, like, we joke about opening the Ramsey Family Bakery. No one has ever looked at a, at a recipe and, and thought, ooh, there's salt in this one, guys. You know? Um, and you usually don't know about it until you forget to put the salt in it, which can happen because um, you don't think it's much, but it matters. And so a couple years ago, our home group was having a brunch. And, um, and so I have a really good homemade cinnamon roll recipe. My kids like cinnamon rolls. I like to cook. It's like a boredom thing. And Elton Brown has a good cinnamon roll. If you ever want some, I'll bake them for you. And when I made them that morning, I forgot the salt in them. And, uh, and I realized that I took them anyway, and I apologized, and they were generous to me, but they just weren't very good at all. Now, they're cinnamon rolls, so you eat them anyway, you know, but they're just not good. And that's how salt is. I bought a thing of peanuts the other day, you know, the dry roasted salted peanuts, and I started eating them, and they weren't salted. And the thought never crossed my mind to look at the thing and see if they were salted or not salted, because who would want unsalted peanuts? Uh, and so they will sit in our pantry for like the next five years. And so we're like, we should probably just admit that was a mistake and throw them out. So I don't think that's what Jesus was trying to say about the church. <laughs> I don't think Jesus was saying, church, you're going to be boring, you know. <laughs> uh, but you're really nice to have around and, uh, you know, but we'll get by if you're not there. That's not what Jesus was saying about the church, right? And so in my study, I'm like, that's probably not the message. And then I spent an inordinate amount of time researching salt on the internet and thought, surely I'm wasting my time right now. Uh, but it was pretty amazing. So in the ancient world, salt was referred to as white gold. Roman soldiers were often paid with salt. The Latin word for salt is sal, S-A-L. They were paid a salarium. You make a salary because salt was so important in the ancient world. Entire economies were based on salt production and trade. Salt taxes and monopolies led to wars and revolutions everywhere from China to Africa. The first patent issued by the British crown to an American colonist was a method to produce salt. In the Revolutionary War, the British generals celebrated when they captured Washington's salt supply. Anger over the salt tax led to the French Revolution. The Erie Canal which I couldn't even tell you where that is, somewhere near Erie. But it was a big deal when they opened it up in the early 1800s was the ditch that Salt built. Thousands of Napoleon soldiers died on the retreat from Moscow because they didn't have enough salt to put in their wounds. Gandhi had this famous salt march to Dundee um, to protest the British monopoly on salt production. And it led a bunch of Indian folks to just start making salt on their own and was a milestone in the struggle for Indian independence. It's a huge deal. Uh, here's, how, here's how salt works. Maybe, maybe you know this already, and I just missed it. But this is the example they gave that made so much sense. They said, take a red blood cell. It's not that big. And, um, and you put it in water, and it's a porous membrane, and there's a high salinity within the cell, and so it will suck the water in until the cell explodes. But if you put it in a solution that has a higher degree, amount of salt, there's a word for this that I don't know what it is, but you know what I mean, like more salt outside of it, it will suck the liquid out of the cell until it shrivels up and dies. Is that cool? Or is it just me? Uh, and so when you rub salt on meat, whatever it is that will eat up the meat, the bacteria or the mold, the salt will work at a cellular level to suck the liquid out of it and um, kill it, which I, that's cool. Uh, now the refrigerator kind of took the shine off of that. You don't need to salt your meat because you've got the refrigerator. You don't realize how important that was until your chest freezer. 
that you kept in your basement in your house on Edenton Street failed, and you didn't realize it for two weeks because you didn't go down to your trust freezer very often, and you went down one day to get some ground brief to make some sloppy joes, and you realized that there were some sloppy joes that were already made in your chest freezer <laughs> because refrigeration apparently doesn't kill bacteria. <laughs> and so when it, try that once, okay? <laughs> when it stops, all of that bacteria came back. It was the second most disgusting thing I've ever had to clean up in my 50 years of life. And that's saying something, y'all. I mean, has anybody ever had that happen? Where your thing fails and you, and you don't realize it for a while? It is nasty. So think about Jesus' words in that light. This is what he's saying. You, church, are the salt of the earth. And if you, church, don't do your job, then the world is going to look like that chest freezer. That's what he's saying. The world is going to go to a hell in a handbasket if the church doesn't do her job. That changes that passage a lot for me. And my mind goes in a lot of different directions with that. Um, here's the first one. Uh, honestly, is um, the church doesn't always do that well. Um, so if you're here uh, and you are, you are not following Jesus, you're not, you haven't been a part of the church, you're just checking things out, you're like, what am I doing? Or you're tuning in, and thanks for tuning in, and you, you think that. Um, I could hear you thinking, oh, please don't tell the church that, that that's the thing. Don't tell the church that the church is God's gift to the world. <laughs> because that's a phrase we use when people get obnoxious, when they get a little bit, they think a little bit too much of themselves. And the church can be obnoxious sometimes. And as a pastor, I'll tell you that, you know. Uh, I said this last week when we were talking about being ambassadors with the message of reconciliation. Um, it, I said, hey, if you're not a Christian and you're tuning into this, I, want, I need you to hear this wasn't our idea. We didn't just come up about, with it and think, well, we'll go tell everybody this. We are sent, and this isn't our idea. God is the one that has said that we are, uh, serve as a preservative for the world, and, and it's worked really, really well for 2,000 years, and it's going to work really well for as long as it needs to work. I'll also say this. It comes in the context of, um, this is the Sermon on the Mount, famous Sermon of Jesus. It's right after the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are where Jesus says stuff like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, and he goes on with that and says, blessed are those who are meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and blessed are the merciful, and the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. So there's a humility that this um, command, this statement comes in the context of, and there's a conviction. He says at the end of that, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely, against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so that statement is set in the context of humility and in the context of conviction. And I'm going to come back to those in a minute, but man, that's what the church needs to, to major in, is humility and conviction. So that's a thought that comes to my mind. Another thought is this, the church absolutely does serve this purpose, and the world absolutely needs the church to serve this purpose. Uh, I believe in the good of the church, or I would not do this job. Uh, the passage presumes two things. It presumes corruption, and it presumes darkness. You don't need salt unless you're facing some type of corruption, and you don't need light unless you're facing some type of darkness. And I think regardless of where you are, we all agree this is not, we are not living in a world that is the way things are supposed to be. I read a book years ago um, called 
a, a breviary of sin. I found this in an airport. It was a theologian named Alvin Plantinga, and he defined sin. One of his definitions for sin was a kind of a Jewish way of defining sin is a violation of God's shalom. And so shalom is the word for peace, but it's really the word for the harmony of all things. And so the way God wants things to be in any sin is a violation of God's shalom. And I think we all agree that shalom has been violated, and we have been a part of violating the shalom of creation, the shalom of the people around us, our own shalom, like we have violated that. We can have lots of disagreements on, you know, how it was violated and why it was violated and how to fix it. Um, but, but he's saying the church is a huge part of God's answer to that problem. I read a pastor say, say this this week, man has increased in scientific, medical, historical, educational, psychological, and technological knowledge to an astounding degree. But he has not changed his own basic nature, and he has not improved society. Man's knowledge has greatly improved, but his morals have not. His confidence has increased, but his peace of mind has diminished. His accomplishments have increased, but his sense of purpose and meaning have all but disappeared. Instead of improving the moral and spiritual quality of his life, man's discoveries and accomplishments have simply provided more ways to corrupt and destroy himself. That's probably a little bit harsher than I would have said it, but I don't disagree with them. Um, I mean, over and over again, you hear people talk about the beginning of the 20th century, the 1900s, the optimism that existed about the world in general. And then we went through two world wars and ideologies that killed millions upon millions of people. Um, in our own day, I think of the saying like, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm making great time because we don't. We're moving faster and faster, but we're not sure. And I think of social media um, because social media doesn't change what we are. Social media exposes what we are. And that can be for, for good, you know what I mean? But in a lot of ways, it can be for bad. Um, I heard a guy say years ago, and I've repeated this over time, that um, there's a book called When Helping Hurts and Dealing with Poverty. And he said, the first thing you've got to understand is that you can't look at poverty just in financial terms. You can be financially well off, but you can be relationally and emotionally and spiritually poor. And he said in America, like, we only look at it in one dimension, and we miss the totality of it. And I feel like that's part of this, that um, we are emotion or financially and technologically rich, and so, but we can, we can not look at um, how we are relationally, emotionally, and spiritually, and I think we're definitely poorer. And, and the church is a preservative and has been a preservative and has been a great good uh, for the, wor the world since it, since it started 2,000 years ago. Now, my mind also goes to how do we, how do we live this out when, um, you know, what does it look like for us to be the salt of the earth? And this is what I'm about to go through. It's something I've been thinking about forever, but really a lot for the last year and a half. Because when you say, and I have this conversation with you guys all the time, and I think it all the time, um, when I tell people and get to talking to them, and uh, I just, I want to talk about Jesus. And, and so sometimes I'll say I'm the pastor of a church. Sometimes I'll talk about being a Christian. Sometimes I'll just talk about the role of the church in our family's life. And there's certain things where I feel like people's minds are going to go that I don't want them to go and not to the place that, that I want it to go. Do you, wanna, do you know what I mean? You get scared of where people's minds are going to go when you start talking about your faith. I need something here. I need a little bit of, okay, okay. Because here's where I think people go in our culture. They want to know 
Well, what do you think about, they go to these issues, sex, race, um, <laughs> if you're here and you uh, are the person that hasn't been to church in a while and you're afraid of what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about all of it, okay? Uh, these are the big, you know, cultural hot button issues that we go to, sex, race, abortion, and to a lesser extent, um, poverty. What, what we want to talk about and what we want people to think about is Jesus. You know, this is where we want to go, and the gospel. And what, what I want to talk to people about is the, the self-realization that, that Jesus brought to me, that I am the one that's violating shalom of my own and God's and yours, and I can't stop doing it. And I needed Jesus to do something about it. That I was thinking this morning about Romans 7 where Paul says, what I'm doing, I don't understand the thing that I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, I keep doing. And he gets to a place of saying, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And then says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore no condemnation for those uh, who are in Christ Jesus. And, and what we talk about every single week that he came and lived that life that we were created to live, a life of dependence on the Father empowered by the Holy Spirit. He died the death that we were supposed to die, and he rose from the dead to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit, that God has power over sin and death, and that power can change our lives and change our communities. That's what we want to talk about. But it's like we got to go through these things in our cultural moment um, to talk about those. And uh, that's hard. This pastor um, is a pastor from New York named Tim Keller, and he was given an interview, kind of a hindsight on 30 years of ministry, and he said, this is the hardest thing facing the church right now and into the, the near-term future. He said, there are four hot-button cultural issues, and if you are biblically consistent, and I tend to agree with how he thinks about them biblically, and I'm going to articulate that in a minute, but if you are biblically consistent about things, these things, you are going to be culturally inconsistent. And so how do, you, how do you navigate that? And this is, this is what he meant by that. When it comes to um, sexuality, and I, I'm going to skate over this, and if you want to talk, I will sit down at any point, and we have spent a lot of time as a church, I've spent a lot of time reading, praying, discussing about these issues. But if, if it's true that in the image of God he made them, male and female, he created them, and that is referred to throughout the rest of the Bible, Jesus says, um, for this reason, leaning back into that, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Uh, and marriage is a picture of a God united with his people. It is a picture of the gospel. And, and that God's best for sex is a committed married relationship between a man and a woman. And everything outside of that, um, whether that be pornography or premarital sex or extramarital sex, same sex, is outside of God's plan for our sexuality. And ultimately, God doesn't want us to do that because he made us and he knows what's best for us. Um, and there's a lot that goes along with that, right? And we can have a lot of discussion about that and, and that needs to be held with humility and conviction. But that's a tough position to hold culturally right now. Uh, when it comes to race, and this is something that we as a church the past few years have a partnership with a friendship with the church across the parking lot from us where we're delving into these issues. But if we're all made in the image of God and we're all broken. Um, we're all looking for an identity outside of God. We're all elevating ourselves above the people around us to, to find an identity that says, I'm okay. I have a righteousness. Um, and this is in the very 
first few pages of the Bible. When Adam and Eve are in the garden, they eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil, and God comes in and says, what happened? Adam says, the woman you gave me, she did it. And he is elevating himself above her so he can feel okay about himself. It's someone else's fault. And you've probably done that this morning in some way. You know what I mean? Um, and all the isms and racism, one of them is like we find a way that our group is better than their group. And so we find a, a righteousness for ourselves within a false identity, and that false identity will lead to power. And so that's classism, sexism, nationalism, racism. Um, and that's where it starts, and the answer is in the gospel. Uh, that in Christ, we don't need that because we have everything we need in him. We have our identity in him. That everyone's made in the image of God, that no group is better than another, and then you can repent of the false identities you've created because they've done damage to the people around you. You can confess and reconcile to the people you've done damage to. And abolitionists from Wilberforce to MLK have used the gospel to say, this is how we think about race. And to bring about dramatic change because of it. When it comes to the issue of abortion, if we are woven together, and, are, and I, oh man, I know as soon as I wrote that up there, like, I know that I don't know what that does. Um, and so I apologize for bringing it up in what is going to be, not flippant, but like just, a, just touching on it. But if we're woven together in our mother's womb and chosen before the foundation of the world, then something's going on um, that we shouldn't mess with. Uh, and, and we should fight for the, the well-being of the unborn. And when it comes to poverty, uh, and I'm going to talk a bit more about this next week in light, like if whatever we do for the least of these and the people that are, that are on, on the, the undersides of our, you know, cultural richness, um, we're doing for Jesus. And you know, we'll go through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Then God calls us um, to be with, the, with folks that are struggling. And I, actually, I don't think we do this very well. It, I read the other day that... Um, CEO pay right now is 300 times the average worker salary. I don't know if you've seen those stats. I pay attention to these every once in a while. In 1965, apparently it was 20 times. Now CEOs should make lots of money, you know, but there's something about that multiplier that makes me think, and it, just where we are as a culture, that makes me think we kind of get in bubbles and justify what we're doing and don't pay attention to what's going on outside. To the extent that the other morning I was having breakfast with a few guys from church and we all started talking about refinancing our houses and redoing our kitchens. <laughs> and I just thought, that's fine. You know what I mean? Like, that's fine. But we never have conversations about what we could do for the poor and what God might be calling us to. And I think it's because we're in a bubble where we're not paying attention to what's outside of us. God's called us to all these things, you know. But being biblically consistent is going to make you culturally inconsistent. And this is what he meant. That if, as, even as I talked about that, if you are maybe more of a right-leaning politically, culturally in our moment, if you lean in that direction, when I talk about sex and when I talk about abortion, you're like, oh yeah, Jeff, finally you're talking about that. But when I talk about race and I talk about poverty, you're probably like, oh, be careful there. <laughs> and if you lean the other direction, if you lean a little bit left, um, when I talk about race and I talk about poverty, you're like, preach it, Jeff. And when I talk about sex and I talk about abortion, you're like, oh, there he goes again. And that's worked on me for 18 months. It, immediately, I was like, a light bulb went off for me of, I've been trying to win something that is just unwinnable. <laughs> like, this is, we're going to be culturally inconsistent, and we're going to have to deal with that um, as a church and learn to live through that tension. Um, 
our culture doesn't like see those things the same way. And so my desire in, in my own life and the life of our church is that we see these issues through the lens of the gospel. We see what God's, we try and discern what God's revealed to us and understand them. And I say this a lot, that truth is something that we are supposed to create or we are supposed to discover, but truth has been revealed in the person of Jesus and the word of God, and we are supposed to discern the truth that God has revealed to us prayerfully, um, thoughtfully, in conversation with each other. But culture is coming at things from a very different perspective. And so I spend a lot of time reading and listening to people talk about the, why we are where we are. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago a book that I'm reading called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And one guy just put it, it, it was helpful the way that he went through just where we've been over like centuries. Um, but how people used to orient themselves to the state. We were political man. We oriented ourselves um, into our relationship to the state. And then it was, we oriented ourselves to the relationship to the church, not the gospel, but the church. We're going back hundreds of years. And then we, we were economic man, and we oriented ourselves around the economy. But he said, now we're psychological man. And we orient ourselves to what's coming out, out of us. And I read this all the time. Like, it's about, our, it's about what we feel, and it's the air we breathe, and so we don't even realize it. But the gospel says that our feelings are, like, there's a fundamental distortion with them because our relationship with God is not what it's supposed to be. And so it's dangerous to just decide this is what I feel like truth should be. Um, we have a weekly email that you should sign up for if you're new. I always put a blurb in the beginning about something that I'm reading or listening to that was interesting. And this week it was a, a book review that leaned into this. And the guy said, the contrast is not so much between guilt and shame, but between external and internal standards for determining good. The, the problem isn't the experience of shame. It's that we've been taught to determine whether something is shameful based simply on how we feel about it. Such shame is entirely subjective, unmoored to any external standard. And I, that's a confusing quote out of context, but, but not. Like, where we, get, where we get our truth and our perception of truth, just it shapes completely how we view those um, issues. Now, in, in trying to discern what the gospel speaks to these issues and to hold that with humility and conviction, the church does serve as a preservative uh, for culture. Um, I, I thought this week about particularly the issue of sex and you know, they say the, probably in the 60s, maybe leaning into the 50s, there was a, like a sexual revolution. You know, whoever fought that revolution won. It's over, they won. And, um, uh, and, but you could argue that we lost because I don't, I don't know that we're better off. Um, I listened to a podcast a few weeks ago and the the title of it, their tagline was about, it was about the sex recession in America and how we're having less sex than ever, which may be okay, except we're watching more pornography than ever. And just, just how things have changed and how it, it hasn't led to the, the quote-unquote freedom that people were, um, were looking for. And so living this way, like, puts a, there's going to be a tension. <laughs> there's just naturally always going to be a tension when you look at these issues 
differently. And then how we handle that tension matters. And this gets back to humility and conviction because, man, as the church, I think sometimes we think to be a preservative is to jam this stuff down people's throats, and that is absolutely not the answer. My old boss used to say, you can't legislate morality. I think about, again, the beginnings of the Bible is God puts Adam and Eve in a garden, and he, and he puts a tree in the middle of it that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that is saying, like, God's saying, hey, I know good and evil. I'll give you what you need when you need it. Don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you do, when you think you know more than you do, it's going to lead to death. But he puts the tree in the middle of the garden and tells him it's there and warns them, but it's right there. He doesn't put it on the fringes of the garden. He doesn't lock it up in a gate they have to climb over. You know, he doesn't do all the things that we would do. And I think that's because what he wants is relationship. He wants trust. He wants us to trust him. And now we we have that trust relationship through the person and work of Jesus for us, but that's what he's always wanted. And that doesn't happen when you try and shove stuff down people's throat. on top of that, I think we're in a cultural moment where we don't, we have a hard time talking to people about things that we disagree with them about, right? Uh, I was in Lidl the other day, and um, just passing by a guy in line, and just let him go, we nodded at each other, and then he had to come back out, and I looked at his t-shirt, and it said this. Do I have this, do I have this one? I used to be a people person, but people ruined that for me. And I thought, that's perfect for where we are. Uh, I was reading a book a few months ago, and it was about Winston Churchill, and it talked about how his like, best friend when he was early in the House of Commons or whatever they have over in England was a guy that was on the other side of the aisle, and they vehemently disagreed on just about everything. And, but they would get together for dinner every Thursday night and just duke it out. And Churchill was obnoxious. I can only imagine what those conversations were like. But he said, I never walked away from that not feeling like I wasn't better off for having done it. We don't do that now. I think about when I was growing up, um, and I didn't know this at the time, I read it in hindsight, but, but Ronald Reagan was president for a while when I was growing up. He was, you know, on the, a Republican guy. And Tip O'Neill was a Massachusetts Democrat, Speaker of the House, I guess forever. They disagreed ideologically about everything, but they regularly got together socially and were just cordial and really good friends with each other. And I thought if Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell had dinner every Thursday night and we knew about it, would either one of them ever get reelected? And they wouldn't because we're just in a moment where for some reason we can't talk about stuff. And in, that, in the context of that, light serving for the common good of culture becomes um, so much more important. Proximity becomes really important. Having relationships where you just know people and care about people and they know that you know and care about them. And humility um, is huge. And so there's another, this is going to be low and so you probably can't see this, but I think about like how we hold these convictions and the spectrum on which we hold these convictions and how we can be um, uncertain about what we think the gospel, how the gospel speaks into those issues. And we shouldn't, if you're uncertain, that's fine, but you shouldn't stay there. Um, We can be apologetic and say, you know, this is what I believe um, the Bible says about that, but but I'm really sorry, and we should not do that either. And I feel like our church has spent, and I've spent some time on this end of the spectrum. There's a a middle place of being biblically confident 
of just saying, you know what, I have prayed, and I have read, and I have discussed, and I feel like this is what, how the Bible speaks into these issues for our good, and I'm not going to apologize for what God has told us. Um, but I'm also not going to be in the next level here, oh, that's a B, uh, would be obnoxious, and I think that's how the church is viewed a lot of times, and then on the far side of that spectrum is angry and hurtful. And I've thought a lot about this, and how do we get a church to be in this space? And you, if you're following Jesus and you're uncertain, man, do some homework. Uh, it's all out there. Let's have a conversation. I've thought about this, and I'll mention this later, but about how we probably should have for years had maybe Sunday, quarterly, a Sunday evening forum about one of these issues and just spent some time together in the Bible and talking through why this is difficult or just what the Bible says and how we hold that as a church. But we can't stay here. We shouldn't be apologetic. We can move to biblical confidence. And you probably in our cultural moment have to, willing to be willing to be seen as obnoxious, even if you're not obnoxious, because the culture's, and, and Jesus says that. Um, uh, but, but man, we can't be here. And I feel like this is how culture perceives the church, is that we're at best obnoxious, and at worst, angry and hurtful. Let me say a few things, and I'm winding this um, down, a few more things that come to mind with this. This isn't optional for the church. Uh, part of this passage, Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The church has to be salt for the world. I think there are segments of the church that have lost sight of the gospel because they don't want to be uncomfortable to the culture and have lost their saltiness. Um, just my perception of it. And so the church has to be willing to engage that tension. It's not going to be easy for the church. Jesus in this passage, or right before this passage, says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. Rejoice and be glad? <laughs> really, Jesus? Yeah. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Um, he knows it's not going to be easy for us. It wasn't easy for him. Uh, but God will continue to use his church. In context of another passage where many of his disciples left him because it was difficult, Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I, Jesus, will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there are some things that... Um, just in our immediate future as a church, we did something a couple years ago called Oak City Go. Uh, it was just, a, just, a, just a, a push to focus on who God has placed in your life and an acknowledgement that this starts with prayer, that this is not our work, that we are not going to build God's church, that God is going to build God's church, and he's going to use us. And we're going to do that again, and, and we have magnets that we're going to get to you and where we're going to ask you just to to pray about who you should be praying for and the people that God's put across your path where you need to be, um, you know, have your eyes open for the work that he's doing and how he wants you to participate in it. Because I think it is easy 
to just go in a shell and say, I don't really want to deal with this stuff, and to get super busy, and to not think about how God wants to use us uh, when there's so many things that are vying for attention. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to do that and talk about that till the end of the year about just to, to get some attention for us of um, how God wants to use us.